As you're seated, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew's Gospel chapter 21, which hopefully will resolve some of the confusion a few of you may be feeling as our call to worship was taken from a passage used typically on Palm Sunday. And we sang a song this morning, typically sung at Christmas time. And here we sit at the end of July. And some of you wonder, what is happening? Well, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel off and on for the past several years. And for the next few months, we're going to be looking at Matthew 21 through 25, the last teachings of Jesus in that Gospel, beginning with his entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his life. So this morning, I'll be reading Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 17, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. There is uh, an ongoing and, and deeply divisive debate going on in our culture these days. There are deeply held views on both sides. And I, I hesitate to even bring up topics that are so potentially divisive here on a Sunday morning because what people believe on this topic is, is very personal. And, and I would stress that, that both views on this matter are welcome in the church. <coughs> And I'm not going to try this morning to convince you to hold one view or the other or even to tell you what I think. I want us to simply explore the tension of this topic because the fact is, dogs and cats are very different. You may like one more than you like the other, but set that aside for now as we consider one difference in particular. Dogs get excited about everything. Whether it's sniffing a boot or hearing their name, or meeting a stranger, dogs get excited about everything. Cats, no. Cats need a reason to wake up. Cats need an excuse 
to greet you. Cats don't get excited easily. And we live, I believe, in a culture that wants us to be like dogs, that wants us to get excited about the latest movie or the latest phone model, the latest sale, the latest election, the latest issue, the latest sports events. And that can be wearying, trying to live in this constant state of excitement and celebration. And it, I think, creates in us a, a difficulty in getting excited over things that are worth celebrating. We become jaded and fatigued. And that's sad because the good news of Jesus is actually worth celebrating. It's worth letting our heart off of its leash, so to speak, and running around in all the excitement that we can muster. And that's what we see in this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We see the crowds excited. We see the crowds celebrating just one week before his death. And it's good for us to stop and ask, why? Why should anyone, why should I care about this king? What sets him apart and makes him so special? What makes this worthy of excitement and celebration and joy? What we come to see in these stories here this morning is that in Jesus, God gives us the salvation that we truly need. And so like the crowds, we ought to welcome that salvation with great joy. But to see that, And to understand that, we need to learn from these verses what kind of king we are welcoming. What is he like? And to begin with, we see that he is a humble king. As we read these verses, one thing that stands out to me is is how many times, again and again, it refers to the Old Testament. Whether it's Matthew referencing one of the prophets or Jesus himself quoting from the Old Testament, We are being over and again reminded that Jesus isn't just making this all up as He goes, but everything He is doing is with the intention and the purpose of fulfilling the plan of God. And so as He sends His disciples out to to find a donkey, He tells them where to go, where to find it. He tells them what to say when they're stopped. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And all that just displays the power that Jesus has to know all things, and to be in control of all things. It's not as if he was trying to sneak into Jerusalem and suddenly these crowds pop up and he's like, well, what am I going to do with all these people? He knows, and he's in control. All that happens is in his control, and yet he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, even in Jesus' culture, a donkey was a very appropriate animal for a king to ride on. But the importance is what it signified when he did so. I was reminded of this very recently as my kids rewatched both versions of of the Disney movie Aladdin, where there's a scene that even as a child I liked growing up, where Aladdin, who's found this lamp, you know, he's he's taking on the, the, uh, he's looking like a prince. He's trying to be a prince so he can impress a princess. And as he's entering an ancient Near Eastern city of Agrabah, there's this whole celebration There's elephants and camels and peacocks and singers and noise and gold and gifts and and a song, you know, Prince Ali, mighty is he. And it's the whole thing is to impress and to get attention. And that's what we should expect when a king or someone important enters the city. They want to impress. They want to get attention. They want you to know how great they are. Now, in ancient times, in Jesus' culture, when a a dignitary, when an important person would enter a city, they would do so with great pomp and circumstance and celebration and noise. But if a king was entering a city, it was important how he did so. Because if he did it on a horse, it meant he was coming in conquest. 
He was coming to defeat the city. He was coming to exert his power over that city. But if a ruler came on a donkey, he was coming in peace. He was coming to bless. It's all the more evident by the verse that Matthew quotes in verses 4 and 5. He quotes Zechariah saying, This took place to fulfill what's been spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, a burden. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, focusing on the humility of Jesus. But there's more that Zechariah speaks of there. And so let's look. We, this was our call to worship this morning. It was from Zechariah 9. Let's see what the prophet says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah tells us that this king is coming with salvation and that he will put an end to war. He will bring peace and comfort, not just for Israel, but for all the nations, for us. He's not here to conquer He's not here to destroy. He's not here to show off, even as our assurance of pardon reminded us this morning. God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And so He is humble, bringing salvation and peace. And seeing the King mounted on the donkey, coming humbly to bring salvation, the people celebrate. There's going to be a lot of cheering with that good news coming into the city. Verses 8 and 9 describe the crowds spreading their cloaks on the road, others breaking down branches and putting them on the road, and the crowds go before Him and following Him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. You see, unlike Aladdin, who had a, somebody running around trying to stir up the crowds and get them singing and, and calling on them to feel excited about this, this person entering the city, Jesus didn't need any help. The crowds knew what they were looking at, they, they heard of His mighty deeds and their great hopes and expectations rode into Jerusalem with Him and so they, they naturally wanted to cheer and worship and celebrate and sing. But what they did not know, what Jesus knew but they did not know, was that His humility was setting up an entirely different kingdom than the one they expected. They are praising a king who came to save, which in their minds could only mean political power. You're coming after Rome. You're going to bring your military might. We're going, to, we're going to tear the system down and put a godly system in place. But he is a humble king who does not come to power that way. His humility began with taking on human flesh, being born as a baby. But it extended to suffering and death. He who was humble enough not to seek the political power and the crown that he deserved was also humble enough to allow himself to be arrested, tried, and executed. One of our doctrinal statements, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, describes how Jesus' life and ministry exists in a state of humiliation and exaltation. And in asking what is that state of humiliation, it describes it this way, that Christ's humiliation consisted in first, his being born, taking on flesh, and that in a low condition, being 
poor, not great. Made under the law. Undergoing the miseries of this life. Undergoing the wrath of God. And the cursed death of the cross. In being buried. And continuing under the power of death for a time. In all this, He humbled Himself and willingly took on these things for our salvation. He did not chase power, fame, prestige, influence, or anything else that we would consider honoring. He was a humble king, and by His humility we are saved. He's acting out the very thing that He had said in the previous chapter in Matthew 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Any other king entering a city would have demanded that his his citizens, his servants, serve him. But this king comes in humility to serve others. The reason he can do so is because of what was yet to come. You see, it wasn't just a state of humility and humiliation that Jesus endured. It was followed by a state of exaltation, which we have described in Revelation. This morning we sang the words of Revelation 19, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. Well, as that chapter goes on, it describes Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, not a donkey, a white horse entering. When Jesus returns, He does not come back on a donkey. He comes back to conquer on a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, crowns, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe. And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of lords. He can be humble. He can enter bringing peace because there will come a time, amen? There will come a time when He does not come quietly into His kingdom, but comes on a horse and makes war against every wrong and against every enemy. And all that opposes Him will be punished and ended. Even as we sang this morning, quickly come, dread judge of all. Because we want Him to bring His kingdom. Child of God, live in patience. Live in patience because your humble Savior who bears the scorn of the world and asks you to share in His rejection and share in that scorn, He will return. And when He does, the veil will be removed and His glory will be revealed. He is a humble King. Amen. But he is not just humble. After arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple. The temple was the center of worship for God's people. It was ordained by God to serve as a reminder of God's presence. It was the place where sacrifices were made regularly to teach the people that God punishes sin with death. And yet God has a plan that another will be sacrificed in our place. As a faithful Israelite, you were required to make sacrifices and offerings at the temple at least once a year. And Jesus was there during a particularly busy time, the the festival of the Passover. But if you're coming from somewhere else in the Roman Empire, you're probably not going to bring your animals that long way to Jerusalem. And so you bring something to trade. You bring some currency, some coins to trade 
so you can buy an animal to sacrifice once you get to the temple. And if you're coming from somewhere else, you probably don't have the currency of the temple. You probably have some other Egyptian, Greek, or Roman currency to use in the temple. And so you need a money changer to help you get the kind of currency you even need. Seeing this opportunity, many people had set up shop within the temple walls. The first big open area of the temple was set aside. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. It's where the nations, those who were not Jews and could not enter the temple, were allowed to come into that open court and seek the true God and pray to Him there. But instead, that whole space had been taken up by those who were trading and bartering and bargaining and selling. So Jesus sees that in verse 12. He enters the temple and He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, there was nothing wrong in itself with what they were doing. Buying, selling, currency exchange, that's all fine. That's all well and good. Verse 13 shows us what the real problem is. Jesus says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is pulling together two uh, quotes from two different prophets. Kids, if you're following along on your on your sheets. It's the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah. First, in Isaiah 56, the Lord says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain. The Lord's not going to exclude those outside of Israel. He's going to bring them in and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer For all people. That was the plan. That was the vision for the temple of God is that that the temple and indeed the whole nation of Israel would be the drawing point, the center point where the nations would come together and learn of the true God and worship Him and be blessed by Him. That's what the temple was for. But in Jeremiah 7, we see what it has become. The Lord condemns a kind of worship that has no heart. And in Jeremiah 7, He says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known? And then after you do all that, come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. And then go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What Jesus saw when he came to the temple was that it was no longer a place where people from every nation could gather and and worship the Lord and pray and seek the Lord. Instead, it was a place where people went through the motions, where sacrifices did not shake their conscience and remind them of their sin, but instead, it was just a common transaction, like buying and selling bread. Let me go to church, let me sing my songs, yay, I've been redeemed, I'm delivered, and let me go home and change nothing about the way I live. Let me live my life just like my neighbors and everyone else. Like in Jeremiah's day, they worshipped but remained unchanged. They praised God with their words, but not their hearts. And Jesus, here's the second one, He's a humble king, but He's also a jealous king. He's jealous. We're used to thinking of that as a bad word, aren't we? We we often, in our language, we confuse jealousy with envy. Envy is wanting something that's not yours. What jealousy, in its original meaning, is is that red-hot fire of love that steps up to fight, to protect, and defend, and guard what you love and what you care about. I saw that uh, an example of that in a person 
Um, and I have permission to share this story. Okay, I need to be very clear. I have permission to share this. It was about 10 and a half years ago. Um, my wife and I, we were on the mission field. We were in East Asia, and, and we had just uh, adopted our first child, and, and my wife was eight months pregnant with our second one. And so we had a three-year-old in a stroller and an eight-month pregnant uh, woman, and we were trying to squeeze into a subway during rush hour in a city of 29 million people. And it gets crowded. You try, you, I mean, it's shoulder to shoulder in there, and you can squeeze in more people than you'd ever imagine. So if you see there's like the tiniest bit of space, you push your way into that space. And so my wife and I, with, with our daughter in the stroller and you know, our son you know, ready to pop, we squeeze into the subway, and to, a, to everybody else on the, in that subway car, it looked like there was about this much space in front of my wife, because she's got a stroller and a large pregnant belly. And so one man in particular is trying to squeeze his way in, and he's banging up against the stroller with his knee because he doesn't see it, and he's, he's hitting my wife's belly with his body, and so my wife, with all the jealous love in her heart, reaches her arm back and punches him. It's <laughs> my favorite story about my wife. Which he naturally did what you would expect. He apologized because he suddenly realized what he was doing. What, what was I doing? I'm like five feet away screaming, she's pregnant! You know, trying to justify what my wife has done. But what she had done was totally natural and right because she was jealous to defend and protect what she cared about. That's what jealousy is. Jealousy defends. Jealousy protects. Jealousy cares. And that's what God does. The Lord describes himself in Exodus 20. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when God sees his people settling for anything less than the best, when he sees his beloved children letting their hearts be ruled and bullied by other things, he burns with jealousy and he rises up to defend and protect them with his righteous anger. He doesn't do that because he's insecure that we picked something else and not him. He doesn't do it because he feels slighted or embarrassed or offended. He is jealous because he loves us. And he wants us to be blessed. And when we don't follow his ways, when we let our hearts be captured and enamored by other things, we, we forsake the blessing that we could have and that he wants us to have. It was Jonah was in the belly of the great fish and, and praying inside the great fish. In Jonah chapter 2, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. When we let our hearts be captured by other things, we are forsaking the steadfast love of the Lord, which is the only thing that will satisfy us. And God loves us too much to let us miss out on His love. Jonah speaks of idols. Idols do not just come in the form of wood and stone. An idol is anything you turn to when you are stressed. An idol is what you think will make you happy. An idol is what you are willing to give your time and your money to, what you're willing to shape your life around in exchange for the promise of security or peace or acceptance. And so an idol can be a family. An idol can be a relationship. An idol can be a career, it can be a nation, it can be a video game. Whatever you are willing to adapt your life around in the hope and on the promise of getting something back, that is your idol 
And God loves us too much to let your heart be captured by an idol. And so he enters the temple. He enters the place where the grace and love of God should be on display. And instead of that, he sees that worship has become a formality, a business. And he flips over tables in order to remove what is not pure. God may come into your life and see the idols that are taking up the space that should be devoted to the grace of God. And he may flip over some tables in your life in order to jealously protect you in his love. So when God disrupts your life in a way that exposes how your heart has been captured by something else and grown loyal to something else that will not in the end satisfy, when you've, when you've grown attached to the gift and not the giver, the creation and not the creator, and your worship is not what it should be, welcome that disruption. Welcome the jealous king. There's a third thing we see. Having entered the city, in humility, bringing salvation and peace. Having passionately rejected false worship, the jealous king. Any king who follows earthly values would then go on and seek to consolidate his power by, by seeking the favor and influence of people in the city who, who are wealthy or who are in the military, who are leaders. But Jesus does not do that. As Matthew describes Jesus' disposition upon entering the city, we see that he is a humble king, yes. He is a jealous king, but he is also a gentle king. Perhaps we really needed to see that after seeing his jealousy break out in anger in the temple. But notice what happens. While he's still in the temple, having just flipped over the tables and rebuked these people, his words still echoing in the air, verse 14, the blind and the lame then come up to him in the temple, and he heals them. Interestingly, these are the last healings we see in Matthew's Gospel. After that, it's five chapters of teaching and three chapters of, of his death and resurrection. But now, here in the temple, who is it that gets priority? Who does Jesus allow to have access to this king? It's the weak. It's the lame. It's the blind. It's the weary. Rather than surround himself with powerful people, Jesus surrounds himself with needy people. Rather than devote his time to people who have gifts to give him, he seeks the welcome of people who want something from him. And I'm encouraged by that. My heart is warmed by that because I very often feel unable to properly welcome the king. I don't feel I have enough to give. I don't bring great gifts to him. I feel insecure that so often all I have the ability to bring before him is my neediness. And that is the welcome that he accepts. Those are the people he looks for in the temple. Welcome him by showing him the need that you have, a need that only he can fill. But more than that, we see other people drawn to this king, uh, other people welcoming him. In verse 15, we see the chief priests and scribes observing these wonderful things that Jesus is doing. And they see children wandering around in the temple crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! And they're indignant. They're angry. So we have some miffed and indignant priests and scribes, but look at what's making them so grumpy. It's, it's children. It's children singing their praises. The praises of Jesus. Now, let's be honest, these kids probably aren't sitting there thinking, okay, well, Scripture says the Son of David will rule and this and that and the other. 
They're not thinking through the theology of this. They saw the crowds shouting Hosanna at Jesus. And then they're in the temple following Jesus around saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Isn't this fun? Hosanna, Hosanna. And the priests and the scribes are like, Jesus, can you, can you make them stop? I mean, they're going to cause a problem here. They don't even know what they're talking about. They're going to attract the wrong kind of attention. But Jesus does not mind the noise or the ruckus and He welcomes the praise of the children. In verse 16, He goes on to say, yeah, guys, have you never even read in Psalm 8 where it says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, God has prepared praise? It's not just those with, with good understanding and right, proper, fully formed theology who can worship God. God has ordained, He has determined that even our youngest ones, even those without fully developed understanding, will learn to praise Him. And they should be encouraged, not silenced. Jesus, this King who has entered the city, has aligned Himself with the weakest and the lowliest. He is not harsh. He is not unapproachable. He is a gentle King. So gentle that the children feel comfortable following Him around and receive His encouragement. So gentle that the outcasts feel safe approaching Him? Are the people of God, as is the church of God, a place where outcasts and the lowly feel safe, feel like they can come for refuge? This Jesus, our King, is not unapproachable, not by you and your need, not by children with their limited understanding, not by sinners or outcasts or unbelievers seeking refuge. He calls us to come to Him in Matthew 11. It says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is a humble, jealous, gentle king. There's a shadow over this whole scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem, despite the celebration and the excitement, the week would end with a crucifixion, an execution. When Jesus entered, the crowd sang, in verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were actually quoting a psalm. One of the psalms that were sung yearly at the time of the Passover. As, as the, the pilgrims were, were coming up out of all the cities in, in Israel and even from far away, coming to, to Jerusalem, they would sing uh, the psalms. Psalms 113 through 118, called the Psalms of Ascent, as you go up to Jerusalem. And so the last one was in particular describing arriving into Jerusalem to prepare for the sacrifice of the Passover. That time when the people of Israel celebrated that a lamb died in the place of God's people so that they might live. It's a time of celebration, but also a time of sacrifice. And look at how that verse plays out in Psalm 118. Beginning in verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the crowd's saying. We bless you from the house, the temple of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You see, we would expect a king to enter the city and go up to his throne. Jesus enters the city, and He is the festal sacrifice. He is the lamb that is to die in the place of God's people. And so that psalm plays out with binding the sacrifice and taking it up to the altar to be slaughtered so that His people could live. That's what this all leads up to. Jesus is so humble that He would take on suffering 
and death that he did not deserve. He's so jealous that he would go to great lengths to protect the ones he loves. He's so gentle that he extends his blessing to the weakest and lowliest and those that do not deserve it by the world's standards. That, brothers and sisters, that is our king. That's the one we welcome. That's that's why he is worth praising. So we welcome him with our rejoicing and our praise. We welcome him with our obedience. We welcome him with our trust. It's not the king that any of us would have expected. It's not the king any of us would have chosen or designed for ourselves if we could. But it is precisely the king that meets our need. And so as we welcome this king, we do so recognizing that this is the fulfillment of the wondrous mystery of what God does in his gospel. So let's prepare our hearts to sing of the wondrous mystery of God's plan. We pray, Heavenly Father, joy, knowing that you have met our need in a way that we could not have planned or imagined. Would you inspire in our hearts such joy and such wonder and such excitement over what you have done in Jesus Christ that we will respond not just with shouts of praise, but with a rejection of our idols, a turning away from what is false, a bringing of our needs to you, in all things, knowing that you are the great King who meets our needs for salvation. We pray this because of Jesus.